Welcome to WWDMD, a podcast that is all about peeling back the curtain on what clinicians really think and feel as they work with others. My guests, clinicians, who are also sometimes clients themselves, risk their vulnerability as they publicly share their emotional reactions to their clients, disclose their challenges in doing the work, and reveal their personal backgrounds. I'm Dr. Myers. I'm a psychotherapist in New York City with 30 years of practice experience specializing in anxiety and depressive disorders, as well as sibling relationships and family systems. I'm also a professor of social work at Malloy University on Long Island. I see this as a journey of self-reflection for not only our guests, but you, because with each episode, I'm hopeful that you will learn something new about yourself. Please note that any discussion of case details have been modified to protect the privacy of our clients. What would Dr. Myers do? Hey, everyone. I am with Silas Kelly today, and uh, I am really thrilled. But before I introduce you to him through providing his bio, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, how we came to meet. So we have a common colleague, a common colleague, and um, we hosted an event at Malloy University that was for alumni, and we were going to highlight um, a couple of us in the field, and the chosen ones were Silas and myself. Uh, who both happen to be podcasters and were able to share our trajectory to that point. Uh, and I was so taken by Silas's story that I said, you have to come on my podcast and share this with my listeners because it completely fits into exactly what we do here, which is to get a window into a social worker's life and how that has shaped maybe why they came into the field or certainly how it influences how they do the work and some of the challenges that they may come up against, because as I always say, we are all works in progress. So let me introduce formally now Silas Kelly, who is a licensed master social worker, and he is the 2022 National Association of Social Workers Foundation International Rhoda G. Sarnet Award recipient. In 2021, he was honored as the NASW Long Island Social Worker of the Year. He's also currently the vice president of the NASW New York State Chapter Board of Directors. And he works, uh, I guess, in his spare time, <laughs> this is his primary <laughs> position, as a housing uh, urban development is that correct? The HUD, yes. Housing and Urban yeah. Development, exactly. Veterans Administration Supportive Housing. Uh, he's a social worker for them, and he provides case management services to homeless veterans. He's also, also widely known as an e-journalism social work advocate, and he hosts his own podcast and produces what is now the award-winning Kelson on the air. So check it out because it's a social work podcast which promotes the social work profession, highlights social workers and the good work that we do. He's also the recipient of several awards, including the 2022-2021 Communicator Award of Distinction and Press Club of Long Island Podcast Awards in 2023, 2021, 2020, 2019, and the Radio Award in 2018, and the NASW Media Award for Radio, radio in 2017. What will you do next? Oh my <laughs> God, that is some bio. 
So welcome, Silas Kelly. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Amy Myers. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get started. I want you to tell us a little bit about your personal background in foster care and how you yes. came to be the person you are today and do the work that you're doing today. And so I'll just hand it on over. Okay. So I am a product of this system that we call social work. Uh, I, I came from the foster care system. I'm the youngest of eight children. So I had seven, seven siblings. My biological parents, um, the late William Kelly Sr. and the late John C. May Witherspoon, were not able to properly care for us. And I like to always um, add to that or put a disclaimer to that to say that I'm not condemning them in any way. I'm just speaking the reality of the facts. So eight children, and they were, we were all very close in age. My mother was very young when she had us. They did the best that they could, but there was a lot that elapsed, and the authorities saw that. They eventually came and removed all of us from our home, and the six older siblings all got placed in an institution called Hillcrest Home for Boys and Girls. So they grew up in an orphanage. Myself being the youngest and my next oldest sibling, his name is Paul, we got placed in two separate foster homes. And then through the powers of social work and divine intervention, a family, Mr. and Mrs. Cox, decided one day that they wanted to have some children they wanted to adopt. <clears throat> and by the grace of social work, my brother Paul and myself were, were taken from our two separate foster homes and some way, somehow, we got reunited and we grew up together in the loving home of Mr. and Mrs. Odin and Ruth Cox. Now, mind you, Brooklyn, two separate foster homes and both of us had our, our very difficult challenges. Myself, I was placed in a home that had other children and right away, I was able to pick up on the fact that they got treated much differently than I did. And also, unfortunately, the woman that was left to um, care for me was not very caring, was not very loving, was not very kind. And I was physically abused. And I remember suffering vicious beatings every morning and simply because I had a bedwetting problem. And I remember, and I share this story a lot. I remember I was up on the second floor, Amy, and I remember as a child at three years old, hearing the footsteps coming up, coming up the steps every morning. And I remember laying in the bed and starting to shake and tremble with fear and trepidation because I knew that she was coming up there mm. to give me another one of those vicious beatings. And this is etched in my mind. And I always say that I can't really prove it, but I, I'm almost certain that there were certain mornings that that bed was dry as a feather until I heard those footsteps, which may have caused me to lose bladder control because I was so frightened and so terrified. Yeah. And so this went on, and I don't know how long it went on, but thank goodness, your social work profession, that's why I'm so... Uh, 
so uh, proud of this profession and I'm so indebted to this profession. They had to have seen something. They had to have known something because they got me out of it. Thank goodness they got me out of it. The day that I left, this woman got me dressed, marched me outside, sat me down on the stoop in Brooklyn, spun on her heels, went in the house and slammed the door and left me sitting out there on a stoop in Brooklyn at three years old. And I remember as clear as yesterday, feeling like, wow, I must not be worth anything because she sat me out here like somebody sits out the trash. And then the next thing that went through my head was, this is the way the world is. It's cold, it's cruel, and it's heartless. Don't ever look for anybody to help you. Don't ever ask anybody to help because nobody's going to ever help you. The same way you're left sitting out here on this stoop, that's the way it's always going to be throughout your life. So just get ready, get used to it, because this is the way it is. And, and, and I like to say that those thoughts and those feelings and that fear and that trepidation, it, it stayed with me throughout all of my childhood years and throughout a lot of my teen years and, and, and on through the years. It was always very hard for me to ask for help because I simply Amy, didn't think anybody would ever be there to help. Mm-hmm. So I always felt like you're on your own. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to, don't, don't even look for anybody to help you because this is the way it is. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I think back and I say, that's a shame that a little three-year-old child is sitting out on a stoop in Brooklyn with those thoughts running through his head. Then all of a sudden, a cab pulls up, a social worker gets out, walks up the steps, takes me by the hand, walks me down the steps, opens up the back door of the cab, and there was this beautiful, beautiful woman sitting there. And her name was Mrs. Ruth Alexandra Cox. And she was my new foster mother and my saving grace. And on the other side of her, there was a little boy. And he leaned forward and looked at me, and I leaned forward and looked at him. And we must have done it at the exact same time. And we right away realized that we recognized each other. And he said to me, you're my little brother, and I'm going to take care of you. And we left Brooklyn, came out to Amityville, Long Island, and he and I grew up in the loving home of Mr. and Mrs. Cox from three and five years old to adult to adulthood. And, and, and that was the most profound thing that changed the whole trajectory of my life. And then through the those early informative years, social work profession was always there. They always came and they did their house visits, but they also made sure that we got proper medical care. They made sure that um, we got the things that we needed so that we could experience as normal a childhood as possible. And that happened, and it happened in a big way, all because of the profession of social work. That's amazing. And you are, I mean, that's quite a story. And, and you tell it with such passion and memory, clear memory. So let me just understand that it was at when you were three years old that you mm-hmm. actually were old. now taken by Mrs. Cox. Yes. Um, yes. And, and you remember thinking, don't ask for help. Or you or is that your now adult intellectualized, reflective? understanding or you remember actually feeling no, that? No, I, I remember feeling like 
because I couldn't fathom in my three month, three year old mind. How could somebody do a child like this? Because wow. if you're going to do a child like this, imagine what you do to an adult. Mm. So, so right then and there, I figured like, hey, this is this is what it is. This mm. is the way the world is. Mm. I was also sitting there thinking, you're not worth anything. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that that thought plagued me for a long, long, long time as well. But the fact that, yes, I remember sitting there thinking that mm-hmm. can't count on anybody. Don't mm-hmm. ask for help. And 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 the thing that, that stuck out in my mind through the years is that I was always afraid to ask for help because I was afraid that whoever I asked for help wouldn't be there or they wouldn't help. And I got that from that experience on that stoop in Brooklyn because yeah. I was out there by myself. Yeah. So I'm I'm thinking this is this is it. So forget about help because you're all you got. Right. That's prof- mm-hmm. profound. There were so many other things that 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 plagued my brother and I, and, and you know, and and, I, and I'll share one story. So he and I were taken from two separate foster homes in Brooklyn. We were reunited. We got placed in Amityville. I don't know what his experience was, but my experience was that very rarely did I like get food on a regular basis. His experience must have been the same thing because I remember we used to eat breakfast and he and I couldn't believe that, you know, there was going to be food later. So we would take bread and cheese. Now, this shows you the survival uh, of, of the human spirit, the will to survive. We would take bread and cheese and literally put it in our pockets. Mm-hmm. And then I was, our foster mother, she would send us out to play. And we'd go out there and we'd be playing. And all of a sudden, Amy, something strange happened. She would stick her head out of the, the kitchen door and say, okay, Paul and Silas, come on in. It's time to eat lunch. We would stop and look at each other. More food. What's that about? Right. Yeah. So we go in and we'd eat lunch. Yeah. And get our bellies full. Then we'd go back out in the yard and we'd start playing and fart frolicking. And then like four or five hours later, she'd stick her head out the window, out the door again and say, okay, boys, come on in and wash up. It's time to eat dinner. And Paul was like, what? what this, this guy, this something's wrong here. And so here we are having three meals a day, not, not thinking that we were going to see anything after breakfast. We got bread and cheese in our pocket. And then our mother does our laundry. Yeah. And when she does the laundry, she's pulling out all the, so those, those were our rations. We were trying to, that's how we were going to survive because neither one of us thought that there would be food for later. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And then, Another thing, my my abandonment issues and my neglect issues, you know, plagued me for a long time. So I, I, I want to just wind the clock back for you and and our, and our viewers and listeners. So you have eight children, and we were very close in age. I was infant, and the oldest Kelly was eleven years old. So you got eight children between newborn and eleven. My oh my 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 mother was very young, and she just couldn't handle it. She was from the south. My father was a little older than her, and when they came to Brooklyn, she just she couldn't handle it. She it was too much for her. 
So she used to leave and escape. Mm-hmm. Okay. The reality of it is it was it was too traumatic for her to try to figure out how to deal with these eight young children. Mm-hmm. So she used to leave. Mm-hmm. My used to work. He always worked. And he used to come and, and give her the money. And she used to leave. And she'd be gone for days at a time. And that's how we eventually got taken away. So then that left my oldest sister, Nancy, who was the oldest. She wanted to have a a normal childhood. So she used to stay across the street at her friend's house who had a mother and a father. The mother stayed home and cooked. The father came home from, from work and they sat down and ate dinner. So she stayed over there. And then that left my next older sister, Mary, and she used to try to be the play the mother role mm-hmm. to take care of these six boys. Yeah. But the thing about this that I want everybody to understand that there was always a sense of neglect. There was there was never someone there, and part of that not having food was because there was nobody there to feed us. Mm-hmm. And so, the neglect part was a big part of my early experience. So. Here's the thing, and, and you being a clinical social worker, you, you would appreciate this. Two of my first earliest recollections of the female gender, and this is not, I'm not bashing female gender, but my two first earliest recollections were pain and abandonment. Pain because the foster mother that I was staying with initially used to beat me. Abandonment because my mother left and my biggest, my older sister left. So. Oh, the things that I rec- that I, I associated the female gender with early in my in my in my existence were they were either going to leave me or they were going to hurt. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you and all my listeners that plagued me for a lot of years through my adult, the early teens, teens, and through my adult life. You mm-hmm. know, until I was able to work through that. Now the other thing is, I was so enamored of our foster mother, and she was so kind and so loving. That when Paul and I were out in the yard playing, every five minutes, I would stop whatever we were doing. I would run to the kitchen door and open up the door and say, Mama, you still here? And she would look at me. She would say, well, of course I'm here. Where am I going? I'm not going anywhere. But I was so afraid that this person that finally showed that she cared and that she loved me Oh, she was going to disappear too. You had she separation was... anxiety. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so, so those things between, mm. you know, putting food in your pocket for later, mm. checking to see if mama was still there. So those early years, I, I was really in bad emotional, psychological and mental shape, mm. but it was through the love of my foster mother and the guidance of my foster father and the social work profession that I was able to start to heal. And it took a lot of years to heal. So that's why I appreciate clinical social workers who know how to peel back those layers. Yeah. There's a lot lot to peel back. (laughs) There's there's a lot to peel back, right, Mm -hmm. for all of us. Well, you know, a lot of people who go into social work say that uh, the motivating factor was either they had a social worker who they wanted to emulate or they wanted to be the social worker for other people that they didn't have. Mm. And so when you say part of the social work profession was part of your healing, is that what you would say was the impetus to go into the field? Or what was that point? 
So ever since I can remember, the social work profession and social workers, they were always there helping Paul and I experience normalcy. Uh, when I showed interest in playing uh, music, I had an uh, inclination to play the drums. The social work profession and my social worker got the resources. They got me a drum pad. They got me drumsticks. You know, they paid for initially some music lessons. And I wound up becoming a band member. When my brother and I, you know, expressed interest in getting into the Boy Scouts, social work profession got us all the equipment, all the resources that we needed, and we became scout troop members. In my early teen years, we were always going into, into Jamaica, Queens, and they would have summer activities. We would go on boat rides and go to plays and concerts. And those are the things that I remember that the social work profession did for all of us children who happened to be in foster care, you know, or maybe some of them were, you know, you know, adopted. We weren't adopted. We were placed in foster care, but we were fortunate enough to stay in that one home. A lot of foster children, as we know, get bounced from home to home to home. Yeah. However it worked out, we were able to stay in that one home. But it was still, the social work profession was always there to make sure that we experienced all of the things that normal kids that grow up in a nuclear family with experience. And so that meant a lot to me. And then there was one social worker in profession and his name was, and it's the late Mr. Dalton Murchison. And he stood out above and beyond all the other social workers. And they all were wonderful, but Mr. Murchison, he was special. And I was a teenager when he came into my life and he always showed a specific interest in making sure that my brother and I had a great teenage experience. But also, I tell people, you know, when I was 16, I got in some trouble. I got some legal trouble. I got arrested riding in a stolen car. And I had to go to court. And my parents were there. My minister was there. And Mr. Dalton Murchison, my social worker, was there. And I remember standing in front of the judge. And I remember the judge saying, I said, well, Silas, he said, what you did wasn't a good thing. You did a really bad thing. He said, but because you have such a strong support system, you got both your parents here, you got your minister here, and you got your social worker here, rather than send you to reform school, I'm going to send you to probation. And I'll never forget that. And I actually got an opportunity to reconnect with Mr. Murchison and tell him, thank you for that. Oh, my um, God. Oh. Um, when was when that? I was, oh, I'm, 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 I'm oh, you're on your this way. Is, <laughs> okay. Oh my! Hey, listen, okay. this is this is like this is it, it was meant to be. Mm. When I was getting ready to graduate from high school, initially I decided to go up to Cobleskill, uh, a small two-year college upstate. Mr. Murchison, after his shift on a Friday, drove. The office was in Queens. He drove from Queens to my house in Amityville, picked me up in his car and drove me all the way up to Cobleskill for my weekend visit, gave me a bus ticket and spending my bus ticket back home and spending money. And he talked to the orientation leaders, found out what was going to be the itinerary for the weekend. And then I'll never forget, he then turned to me and he says, well, it looks like after you finish your orientation, you'll still have some time for some finger popping. You know, and he was cool like that. 
but he was also dedicated and caring. So years go by. And in 2020, 2021, I was accepted to do um, network of social work management. I was accepted as a policy fellow and I got a fellowship, uh, a 11 month fellowship. And you had to do a topic, pick a topic and do research on a topic. And then you had to present. Um, and I chose to do um, my topic on more equitable pay for social workers based on our impact. And I'm speaking from a lived experience and I know what the profession meant to me. And I'm sure I meant that to a lot of other people. And I'm saying we got to get society and funding agencies to start thinking about we, th these people deserve way more than they get in a lot of instances. Now, don't get me wrong. There's some places that you can go in a profession and make a really good salary. But a lot of times you're coming out with your four year degree. Maybe you got your license and the salaries aren't what they what they need to be. So I decided to do my fellowship on social workers um, raising the wage, the case for more equitable pay for social workers and other human service professionals. Thank my, you. My, my, <laughs> Thank you. My, 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 uh, my mentor was um, Dr. Catherine Breyer Lawson, who's Dean Emeritus of the Albany School of Social Welfare. And she said to me, you know, with all your background in media, you should do your project as a media project. And I hadn't really thought about that. And then when she said that, I said, okay, that makes sense. So she helped me line up a series of social workers from around the country. I was able to interview the late um, Dr. Mitt Joyner, who unfortunately we just lost and just passed away. Uh, Sarah Butts, the director of policy down at NESW. Um, I was able to interview Dr. Brian Lawson, who's a child welfare expert, um, Dr. Lois Stein uh, from LIU, and and then uh, also I was able to interview Dr. Tracy uh, Whitaker from Howard University. All these different aspects of social workers and making that case. But the capstone piece, I thought to myself, it would be great if I could find Mr. Murchison and have him be a part of this. Mm, wow. So I started doing my investigative work. I went online. I looked up some, some looked, looked up his name, found some phone numbers. I saw a name down in South Carolina. I saw a name out in uh, Laurelton, Queens. I got the number. I called. I spoke to somebody and I told him, I said, I'm looking, I'm trying to locate a Mr. Dalton Murchison. He used to be my social worker. And he said, oh, yeah, he go, I know Dalton Murchison. He goes, yeah. He said, the reason why his, his, his name came, uh, comes up over here is because it was his ex-wife that lived there. So I said, well, do you know where to get in touch with him? He goes, no, I think he's out in South Carolina somewhere. So I went online and, Amy, I found an address, Dalton Murchison. I sat down. I wrote a letter, explained who I was, what I was doing, told him I wasn't looking for anything but I would like to have him be a part of my fellowship project. So for weeks went by and I didn't hear anything. So my mentor said, well, you know, the old social workers, they were, they were trained that once you finish with a case and you terminate, you're not supposed to go back and, you know, start trying to reconnect. So he, he may be from that old school, old way of thinking. So I said, okay, I understand. All of a sudden, one day the phone rings and it's Mr. Dalton Murchison. And we talked and I told him what I wanted to do. 
And he agreed. And I got a chance to interview him. And I got a chance to tell him about all the powerful impact, the, the powerful impact that he had on me and to thank him. And he was the capstone of my project. So that night, I was receiving my award for Long Island Social Work of the Year. And he and his family again um, attended. And again, I sang his praises and told the whole country what a wonderful social worker he was. And that was June, it was June 17th. Um, and one month later, July 7th, July 17th, he passed away. Oh. But he lived long enough. Yeah. They thank you. Oh, that's amazing. And that's the, amazing. The, the connection that we made in that little bit of time that we talked. And he said to me, he says, he says, it's such so so nice of you, all the wonderful things that you're saying. And he said, um, but this is the pay. He said, this is the pay that I'm getting right now to hear all you say all those wonderful things. He said, this is why we do what we do. Absolutely. To he to have his flowers, and then a, a month later to the day, he unfortunately passed away. So those types of things let me know that I'm where I'm supposed to be. And, and everything that I experienced from being left out in that stoop in Brooklyn to, to, to being physically abused, to being rescued by social work and Mr. and Mrs. Cox, Mr. Mo, Mr. Murchison and all the other social workers, the social work profession, that absolutely colors the way that I do social work and and and, and what I like to think that I stand for to represent the best of who we are because it was the best of this profession that helped me to get through some really rough patches. So yeah, absolutely. Especially when it comes to a family with kids, I'm all ears and I'm all in because I know what that can mean. That was such a powerful story, being able to come full circle because I think about how many of my students have a hard time with termination, you know, at the end of the semester when they're mm -hmm. interning for their first time and they're not yes. going to get to see necessarily the outcomes of their labor and the relationships because I say that a lot of this work is about the relationships, but they build such bonds with their clients and then what becomes of them. So it's kind mm -hmm. of like this bittersweet moment of mm -hmm. saying goodbye and how rare is it that we actually get to encounter those that we worked mm -hmm. with and made such an impact on so many years ahead one in getting to express gratitude of having something express mm -hmm. gift for you but it was a major gift for him right yeah, absolutely to, to see the 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 outcome of of his love and his, yes. his passion for the for the mm -hmm. work that he does which mm -hmm. now makes me think that like all of these people, you know, it's so funny that you remember their names and you want to, you clearly want to give them credit, credibility, yes. right? Mm -hmm. And like, these are the shoulders I stand on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I'm thinking, as you're saying, they, they built me. These are the people, Silas, you're saying built me. And so it makes me come back to the mantra that I was so struck by when we spoke together that mm -hmm. I want everyone to hear that I feel should be on a bulletin board. So hit it. <laughs> yes. So I give hom I pay homage to my biological parents because they gave me life. And I pay homage to my foster parents because they made my life. And I pay homage, thank God, for the profession of social work because it literally saved my life. 
That is so beautiful. And I'm going to ask you to say it again so that people don't have to hit rewind because this is something I want you to take with you for the rest of the day, if not into, yes. into the horizon. Go ahead. One more time. Yes. Uh, I pay homage to my biological parents because they gave me life. And I pay homage to my foster parents because they made my life. And I pay homage to the profession of social work. Thank God, because it literally saved my life. Yeah. Wow. That's just so magical. I love it. So let's go a little bit more into the profession and what you've done Mm -hmm. with it. And so you came out of this life experience and the people, it sounds like it was a combination of your own lived experience as Mm -hmm. well as your exposure to the people in the profession who left their mark and made you want to do something really, really meaningful. Did you have a sense early on of the type of social work you wanted to practice? And if you were going to use your background to support that? that, That's a great question. A couple of things. Excuse me. When I was very, very young, playing in the yard in Amityville, I remember saying to myself, when I grow up, I want to have a, I'm going to get married and I want to have a house full of kids. And I want to have the house full of kids and keep them all together like my seven siblings and I weren't all together. That was number one. Number two, my foster parents instilled in my brother and I Two very important things. Number one, giving back to the community. Always try to do something to help the community to to better the community. And then the other thing was, my, especially my foster mother, she said, be kind to people. Try to do something to help people. Be kind to people. So those two things, giving back to the community, I got a lot of my involvement um, cues from my foster dad, he was involved in the community. He was in the civic association and he was like the head of organizations. And I watched him do things to try to make the community better. And this is now way before I even thought about becoming a social worker. And then so through the years, that always stuck with me to, to, to try to volunteer, to try to do things to help people, to be kind to people, to show kindness. And so I always felt like well, the best way for me to, to honor the, the memory of, especially my foster parents, was to try to emulate the things that they tried to instill in my brother and I, and that's to be of service to others. So, so, so that, that kind of social work foundational thinking was a part of me before the whole formal idea of being a social worker. Mm-hmm. And then years later, when I went back to uh, I went back to school after being out for a long time, and I got my associate's degree at, at Suffolk Community College. Now, here's where it started to first all come together. When I first went back to school, my goal was go get your two-year degree, put together an audition tape, get a job at a radio station somewhere way out east, and then work your way back to New York. I just wanted to be a DJ on the radio play music and talk cool. That was it. Because I had a lot of years in the uh, entertainment field and I was a professional mobile entertainment disc jockey and I thought I could segue into being on the radio because I like talking on the mic and I thought I had pretty witty things to say and I knew music and and I I like to 
uh, intermingle with the people. So I said, that would be great. So at Suffolk Community College, while I was there, I had an opportunity to do an honors project, honors study, independent study project, honors project with an independent study. And then something popped in my head and say, why don't you do a documentary feature on foster care as a way to pay tribute to your late foster mother? Doing something to highlight people that help others. And that way you can always make sure you're giving back to the loving memory of your parents, especially your foster mother. 93, I became public affairs director and news director all at the same time. So I got the news department started and I started my public affairs program called Viewpoints, the weekly public affairs show that takes an in-depth look at issues affecting not only the Brooklyn College community, but the community at large. And that's how my whole career got started in you know, broadcast interviewing. And so I was interviewing people. And the first two years, I was running all over the campus trying to get anybody who would listen to be a guest on the show. By the end of my second year, people were calling up the college saying, hey, how can I be on Viewpoints? So That's now you've melded your e-journalism background exactly. with social work. Yes. And as it says, for those who will be able to see this on YouTube, uh, mm-hmm. it says, stories ultimately needed now. That's the subheading yes. of Kelson Communications. So Absolutely. let's let's just tell uh, everyone what what it is you do and who, who what type of people you spotlight and why you're producing this show. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Um, I started a not-for-profit uh, organization. It's called Kelson Communications, as you know, the viewers can see on the screen. And Kelson is the name of the company, and the sun part stands for Stories Ultimately Needed Now. So telling stories that helps that sun come out in, in, in people's lives, telling stories about people that go out of their way to help other people telling the stories about social workers, who we are, and what we do. And the reason why I started the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast is to highlight, promote, and uplift the social work profession specifically. We do so many things in so many various different areas of society, and a lot of times people don't really know all the things that we do and all the powerful impacts that we have in the systems and the organizations that we work for. So my my podcast is meant to highlight all the different areas. I've had political social workers. I've had elected officials. I've had medical social workers. I've had uh, psychiatric social workers. uh, I've had social workers who do PR and marketing. Everything that you could think of, there's a role for a social worker to play. And I want the public to really understand that we're so much more than people who take kids away from their families and people and professionals who help people get SNAP benefits. There's so much more to us. And so that's why I started it, to promote and highlight us and uplift the social work profession so people could see us in a in a greater light and so they could have more of a respect and an admiration for all the different areas. Because when you start to talk to people about social work, they don't know all the different areas all the different places you can work with a social work degree. Right. And then the other thing is people need to understand that social work is not for people who vow to take a, a, a vow of poverty. There are social workers that make outstanding salaries, but we got to tell those stories. And one of the things that I say is 
you can go from entry level to a CEO, and there are social workers out in society right now today who make six figures. And when I do my speaking engagements, and especially when I speak to college students, first thing I ask them, I say, how many people raise your hand if you know that you can make six figures at a, as a social worker? And a lot of very few hands go. So I want to change the trajectory of what people think. And once they understand that, wow, you, you help people and, and it's okay. And one of my mentors, um, at, when I was studying for my degree at, at Adelphi, um, she said, it's okay to help people and, 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 and make a good salary too. There's nothing wrong with that. Right, because we're so used to saying, well, but I really love what I do. And yeah. why can't you have both? We can love what we do and we can make yeah. a living. A, a, yeah. <laughs> and I love that the background that you've chosen as I'm talking to you is gold because it sounds sounds like everything you touch turns to gold. And certainly your, <laughs> your podcast, having been recognized mm-hmm. and winning an award, is is phenomenal. Obviously, you're doing good work. It's amazing. You can hear your drive and your passion and where that comes from. And I think I often say to my students, we go into this field to heal ourselves. And you certainly have been transformed. And you obviously, doesn't mean that we're still, like all of us have been transformed after we've worked on ourselves for a very long mm-hmm. time. Uh, it takes hard work. You can come out the other side mm-hmm. and do amazing things. And as you said, your goal is to service the community. You're clearly doing that. The joy and passion, you know, so you exemplify is just inspiring. So not only are you a great social worker, but clearly now you're a great storyteller and you're doing even uh, better than that is by telling your story is to allow other people to tell their stories and giving a platform for social workers to elevate their voices and um, the profession at large. So thanks for uh, shining your light here as well. And mm-hmm. tell tell folks where they can listen to your podcast. Okay. You can um, find me, uh, the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast. You can find me on Apple. We're on Spotify, iHeartMedia. We're on Amazon. You can say, hey, Alexa, play the Kelson on the Air <laughs> Social Work yeah. Podcast. That's yeah, cool. you can pull it up that way. All the major podcast platforms, and and now I'm proud to say that I can now say, or oh, wherever you get your podcast, right? And the, <laughs> and the other thing is that um, the the website is www.kelson.org, and that's www.kelson.org, and that's where you can see a little bit more about the organization. Um, and we 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 do offer you know services to those in the human services field. If you have a message that you want to get out, we have a marketing aspect of it. We can do video uh, flyers. Um, We create original music tracks. So a lot of things we do to try to help people stand out and make their message shine. And And I want to say the one thing that I've come to learn through my journey, and this is, I think, the most important thing, which social work helped me to learn, and the late Mr. and Mrs. Cox, is that there are people out there that will help you. And so to anybody out there that's feeling like like I was feeling on that stoop, it's not that way. There are a lot of people out in this world that will help you, and social workers lead that, that, that cadre of people. So if anybody's feeling like I was feeling, feeling like that now, 
reach out to a social worker. You know, if you know a social worker, thank a social worker. And social workers, we make a difference every day. And I'm, I'm so proud to be one of them because I am one of us. Amen. <laughs> Silas, thank you so much for being with me. And You're I welcome. hope to see you again soon. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a question for me, follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Myers Pod. That's D-R-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-O-D. And send me a DM for a chance to get your question answered on the podcast. I've got some problems, yeah, I've got some questions. I need some help, point me in any direction. Clinical guidance is what I need to help me become who I'm meant to be. I've been searching for a teacher, another point of view. And I've been asking myself, what would Dr. Myers do?